0: Hey, family, this is Josh Eggerson. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Faith Restored podcast. Faith Restored is a local church with a global mission to reach the lost and teach the found. And it's our hope that the word you're about to hear today encourages you, inspires you, and builds your faith. If you'd like to learn more about Faith Restored, you can visit us on our website at faithrestored.church. Now let's go live into this week's message. Your Bibles, wherever you're watching from, if you're in the sanctuary, turn with me to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. And I'm going to begin reading at verse number 25. Hear the word of the Lord, it says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. The King James says, in my flesh, I will see God. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. I want to preach for a little while using as a subject. If you know you know. If you know you know, you can abbreviate it. Joe I, Y, K, Y, K, YK. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this acronym, this, these five letters have taken the world and social media by storm, especially on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. It has become a hashtag that allows us to share our collective experiences without mentioning all the details. We can post a picture of Grandma's banana pudding, and if you know, you just know. You can post a picture of grits with butter and salt and pepper and a little bit of cheese. And if you know, you know. You can post a picture of Uncle Joe's barbecue sandals and if you know, you know that ain't nobody gonna tear that grill up like Uncle Joe while he's wearing those sandals. It is a way for us to celebrate our collective joy and our collective sorrow without mentioning all of the deranged and mangled details that might go into that experience, because if you know, you know, Uh, and what's understood don't need to be explained. There are just some things in life that we know, some things that we understand, some Collective knowledge that we've all gained through our experience and we don't have to talk about it as a matter of fact That doesn't just work for good things. It works for bad things Sometimes life is so crazy and out of control. I don't want to mention all the details of everything I'm going through and so I can just post a picture of Karen holding the phone and if you know, you know, I can post a picture of Uh, Lights flashing behind me when I'm holding a sandwich and not a gun or a weapon of destruction and if you know what it's like to be black in America you just know or I can put up a picture of one. A Caucasian female who was missing for just a little bit of time and got international news coverage and then post countless hundreds of pictures of women of color and African American men who have gone missing and yet have had no news coverage and I don't even got to ask the question because if you know you know there were just some things that We know some things that we know. And one of the things that I found out that most of us can come to agreement and consensus on is that 2020 and 2021 uh, have been the red-headed stepchildren of the 2000s because we thought that 2020 uh, was going to be over with the advent of this vaccine. And it seems like 2020 has spilt into uh, 2021. And you know, like... um, Regular twins, regular brothers and sisters, you can separate them, put them apart. If they're and issues together, you can separate them, right? But I found out <coughs> that 2020 and 2021 are like conjoined twins. They, you you can't separate them. All of the problems of 2020 have flown into 2021. And in order for me to get help in 2021, I got to address 2020. And I thought I ended 2020 on a high note. And then 2021 is driving me crazy. There are some things that we know. And we know that 2020 and 2021 20, have been crazy. This pandemic has taken us by storm and turned many of our lives upside down down it has changed our plans it has rerouted our trajectory it has made us have to do things that we thought we weren't going to have to do anymore struggle in ways that we decreed and declared by faith that the struggle was over we had prophesied and said that we weren't going to go through nothing like this in 2021 and yet and still we look at our lives now and we know that things are going out of, cra- going out of control God help me we don't even got to talk about it if I say so certain names. If I mention certain things, you already know. Like if I say Joe Biden, see people already get mad. If I say Donald Trump, folk are already mad. If I say uh, uh, the Senate, people are already mad. If I say infrastructure bill, if I say mask mandates, if I say vaccine availability, if I talk about quarantine, everybody knows something about it that is negative and the world is going out of control and we know it to be true. We know that the world is going out of control. We might not want to admit it. There are some people that are so religious that they try to keep a fame or a front of, oh, I'm just confident that everything is going to be okay. Nothing is wrong. Uh, If you're in the right place, nothing is wrong. But can I tell y'all, y'all probably more spiritual than me Uh, because I feel like I'm pretty spiritual most of the time. And even I can say, no, there is no way to spiritualize this. This is wrong. Yeah, it's wrong that the Asian hate crimes bill got passed with little to no opposition after only a few years of Asian hate crimes, but they could not pass a police reform bill after hundreds of years of documented over-policing and police brutality. Something is wrong. Something is wrong when you look at a White House uh, that used black and brown and poor and tired people to get their position in the White House but won't pass any legislation to help those same black and brown and poor and tired people get a leg up in an economy where it seems like only a few people are winning and everybody else is losing. Not to mention these same politicians that claim to be for the least, the lost, and the left out make more money than all of the people that they claim to represent. Something is wrong. The world is crazy. But not just the world is crazy, the church has gone crazy. Because now as a church, we are adopting behaviors and sanctioning practices and co-signing on things that God would never call us to co-sign on. We're just going along with the culture because the culture says it's all right. The church says it's all right. Because the world says it's okay. The church says it's okay. And instead of transforming the world, we are being conformed to the world and not doing what it is that God has called us to do. And we know that the world is going crazy because the spirit of God is supposed to lift up a standard, but he lifts up the standard through his church. And if the world is going crazy and the church is acting like the world There's no place for the standard. (coughs) Yeah, it's, we know some stuff is crazy. We know that the world is going out of control, beloved. But even though we know that the world is going out of control, even though when we look at our lives, we look at our lives, we understand that the world is going out of control. Our lives are going out of control. Is there anybody here who can, uh, who can say that you've been dealing with stuff in your mind under the sound of my voice? You've been dealing with depression and anxiety about decisions that you've got to make and about relationships that you've got to determine whether they're going to continue or not. You've been dealing with those things and even though we're dealing with stress and anxiety and tribulation and trial and trauma and triggers, we as believers, ought to be able to celebrate in the midst of seasons like this because we know some things about God. We know that we serve a God who is alive and a God who is in control. I know that's not shout-worthy for most of you because you were waiting on someone to prophesy that your situation was going to change tomorrow, that you were going to get a new car, that you were going to get a check in the mail, and all that may be true. God just didn't tell me to tell you that today. What God wanted me to tell you was in the midst of trial, tribulation, tribulation, And triggers you ought to be able to celebrate Because you know that you serve a God Who is alive and a God who is in control God help me that you serve a God That is overseeing the affairs of your life You serve a God that is in charge That he's not up for re-election That can't nobody impeach him or dethrone him He is alive he is well and he is in control And that should be your comfort in the midst of all kind of affliction And I know you don't get it yet Because you don't have a crystal clear example With which to draw your conclusion And so allow me now to introduce you To the principal character in our text Because if there was anybody Who understood what it was like To know that he knew that he knew that he knew That his life was going crazy It was this man named Job Job had a life that was spiraling It seemed out of control uh, Because he was the target of satanic operations Oh, God. He was the target of satanic opposition based on an accusation from the devil. What was the accusation? The accusation was that Job was guilty of having a transactional relationship with God. I know many of you don't understand that, but let me help you. Job was being accused by the devil of having a transactional relationship with God. Meaning that as long as God provided Job with blessings, then Job would respond to God in worship. That as long as the blessings flowed, Job's Job's worship would flow. But Satan contended that if God cut off the apparent blessings of Job's health, wealth, and prosperity... Then then Job then because the transaction was no longer fulfilled would stop worshiping God and that was the whole basis of the contention. God believed that Job's worship was not based on what he had, but on who had him. But Satan felt like Job would stop worshiping if it looked like God stopped giving him stuff. And in order to prove something to Job and to the devil, God allowed Satan to attack Job. And this is where some of us, when we're reading this story, oh uh, God uh, we miss our shouting point because the Bible says that God allowed Satan To attack Job But that allowance did not come Without limitations What was the limitation Bishop You can touch all he has Because you think that his worship Is based on what he has So anything that he has You can have it But you can't touch him You can have what he has, but you can't touch his person. You can touch all of his stuff, but you cannot take his life. God put limitations on the attack of the enemy because God understood that disrupting Job's possessions would not take his worship. And as long as Job had life to give worship, he would respond to God in worship. And somebody needs to understand that God will never abandon a worshiper. God, help me. Uh, God will never abandon someone. who he can trust to give him worship in the darkest points and places of their life God will never abandon someone that he can trust to lift their hands and give him glory even when they got tears in their eyes and they don't understand what's going on I'm not talking about people or that person who's always at the altar crying all the time about the same stuff because they won't get their life together I'm talking about somebody who's crying in worship because they don't even understand why they keep coming to church when their life is as jacked up as it I'm talking about people who don't even understand why they keep giving God glory uh, when it looks like their world is falling down around them. God says that's the kind of person I'll never leave by themselves. And some worshiper in here understands that sometimes worship was all you had, but worship saved your life, God help me. I don't know who, who I'm preaching to, but there's somebody out there, you were raising children, you were trying to live your life, you were trying to pay your bills, and you had no idea how you were going to make your ends meet, you had no no idea how you were going to recover you from your illness. You had no idea how anxiety and depression was going to get up off you and leave you alone. But you kept pressing your way. You kept making your way to church. You kept getting down on your knees. You kept giving God the best you had. You kept giving God your worship and your praise and your devotion. And sooner or later, the situation passed, but it didn't take you out. And you're able to look back over your life and testify Worship, God, help me here. Oh, Cause God not to abandon me. My worship will make it so that God won't leave me alone. Because God won't abandon a worshiper. (laughs) But check this out. Satan is so focused on derailing Job's worship that he destroys everything he has. Yeah. (coughs) He destroys everything that he has. He takes his financial wealth, kills his children, attacks his physical health, causes friction in his marriage. Because he's trying to disrupt Job's worship. Uh, but but, but here, here is the thing. Although Job's worship is what got him in trouble. Unlike most of us, Job understood that even though his worship is what got him in trouble, he also understood that his worship was the only thing that could get him out of trouble. Yeah. See, many of us, when we worship and being a worshiper gets us in trouble, we want to abandon worship, and that's the trick of the enemy. Because the enemy understands that although worship makes you a target, Worship also covers you from being attacked when you are a target. God help me. And some of us need to understand, like Job said, look, my worship might have made the devil pick me, but it's also going to cause the Lord to keep me. My worship may have been the reason that the devil wanted to attack me in the first place, but it's also going to be the reason why God brings me out of this situation and he saves me from this situation with a mighty hand. So, Job does not sacrifice his worship. He continues to worship God. And from chapters 1 to 19, he is lamenting about his situation. He's complaining about his situation. He's talking to his wife. And then suddenly, his friends show up to visit. (coughs) These are his friends. The Bible doesn't call them fake friends. These are people who have befriended Job in the past. And it's not enough that the devil has attacked Job's finances. He's destroyed Job's family. He's even come for Job's physical health by uh, infecting him with a vicious skin eating disease that the only way for him to relieve it is to by peeling the flesh off of his bones and if that's not enough if the attack on his family his fa- his fi- family his finances and his physical health was not enough Now his friends come, and instead of coming to comfort him, the Bible says these friends, after surveying the severity of his situation and looking at it and saying, man, couldn't nobody get into this mess unless they had done something to make God angry. Job, it's got to be your fault. And so instead of comforting him, the Bible says that his friends come and begin to attack his character. And from chapters 17 to 19 or 17 to 18, they are attacking Job's character. They are telling Job, Job, if you had been a little bit more devoted, if you had honored God a little bit better, if you had been a little bit more holy, if you didn't have that chick on the side that we all knew, we knew that wasn't your assistant, we knew it was your side chick the whole time, and you have been lying, and now God done finally got you because she was too fine to be your sister. she not have been up in there in the first place with her. Now God is finally paying you back. And it's interesting how adversity has a way of revealing what folk really think about you. When when you go through something, it has a way of showing you what people really think about you. I I was talking to a friend of mine. Um, and uh, we were we were making commentary of a situation uh, that happened to a colleague in ministry and uh, his his commentary about his situation was man I went to preach and I lost my anointing he said, I said I lost my anointing and so I said well man how, how do you gauge whether or not your anointing is lost uh did, did you did you preach the text properly? Yeah, so the Holy Spirit was present because you preached the text properly. Uh, did you do your best? Yeah, yeah, I did my best. Uh, can you say for certain that there wasn't at least one life? To, well, yeah, man, I know that, but, but the crowd wasn't getting with me. I, mean, I, I, I was preaching, man. I was doing all my best stuff, and the crowd wasn't getting with me. And I said, well... What you're saying is the loss of your anointing is actually the fact that you got caught in some mess and now those people know it. Yeah, because you're real anointed till people find out how human you are. Now, this is not a plea for grace from the pew as much as it is a plea for discretion from the pulpit because you got to understand everybody can't handle seeing the real you. Uh, Everybody cannot handle watching you go through and some people when they watch you go through, they make the assumption about you based on your adversity that they didn't make when you seemed to be prosperous. Uh, Because Job's friends, when Job was doing well, were good friends to Job, possibly because the, the status of Job's life was a benefit to them. But once Job was no longer a benefit to them, their assessment of his character changed. Now, how is it that my situation can cause you to make a negative assessment of my character when I've known all your situations, friends, and I've never made an assessment of your character? But adversity has a way of revealing the position that you hold in folks lives when adversity comes and you no longer seem like you're the person that they should be beside it no longer seems like the Lord is with you it seems like things are falling apart it seems like uh, God is through with you and because people don't read their Bible and understand that he who has promised is faithful to perform it they they don't understand that it might look bad but God is still working on your behalf they make an assessment of you in your crisis that says God is no longer with her God has left him behind God has abandoned them and you can see who these people are once you're really going through this is why we have to thank God for adversity this is why we have to thank God for bad seasons and for seasons of trial because God is going to keep you in the trial You're going to survive it. What you have to focus on is what you're able to learn in the midst of the trial. Do you hear what I'm saying? God says, I'm going to use the fire of this trial to reveal that some of these people who were befriending you were just befriending you because it was convenient to befriend you. But when it looks like it's not going to work, they will abandon ship. Yeah, and the reason why you don't get upset with people for abandoning ship is because God will cause people to leave you and to turn on you at the moment where it will mean the most to you so you learn from it, but it will damage you the least. Yeah, you you missed that. Let me help you. He'll allow people to walk away from you in moments where it hurts the worst. But it damages you the least. Uh, God. Uh, How can I explain this to you in a way that you can understand? Uh, I had a heart attack. I've had actually four. Uh, Heart attacks hurt. But heart attacks don't hurt worse than open heart surgery. I've had two. But whereas heart attacks hurt less, they harm you more. Open heart surgery hurts more, has a longer recovery time, but it actually damages you less. Do you hear what I'm saying? God will put you in situations that will allow you to hurt more so that you remember it. Okay, it was not the heart attack that made me decide I needed to lose weight. It was the scar down my chest and the pain of recovery that made me say, I might be able to live through a heart attack, but I don't ever want to go through that again. And then I got a little bit lax. I said, okay, things are back to normal. I can start tripping again. And then I was laying in bed and my defibrillator went off. Shot me right back to life. That hurt. But it didn't damage me. But the pain taught me that this thing ain't to be played with. See, God will allow things in your life to happen to you that will hurt you deeply. But when you look back over the totality of your life, you'll see that it really didn't damage you all that much. That's why I prophesied to you at the beginning of this season that you wouldn't lose anything that you needed for the next level. That what God put in you to get you to that next level is still there. The connections that you need If God takes away every connection and only leaves you with a few, the connections that you need are still there because people will walk away from you in adversity, but you've got to understand that if God has put them with you, they'll be with you in the end. Yeah, that's what John said about the early church. He said they started out with us, but they were not of us, for had they been of us, they no doubt would have remained with us. But they went out from us so that it might be manifest, what? That they were never really of us. God allows advers- adversaries to appear during adversity. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you thought I was a liar and a cheat, you didn't just start thinking that. How do I know that? Because most Christians don't embrace healthy conflict resolution. Matthew 18. And so what happens is, you have... Uh, An idea in your mind about a person you have an offense that that person has supposedly caused you and rather than dealing with that person and getting the offense out in the air and determining okay yes it happened and I'm sorry no it didn't happen it was a misunderstanding you sit on it and marinate on it and then in the midst of adversity you use that as an opportunity to air that frustration that you've already fleshed out with you yourself and nobody else. And you got to be careful of conclusions that you come to in the counsel of your own mind. Because you're not a good counselor for yourself. I know most of us specialize in talking to ourselves. And we talk ourselves off the ledge. And we think we are our own therapist. And we have long drives in the car talking to ourselves. And telling ourselves what we're going to do next. And no, 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 baby, you can't, thera- 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 you can't be on therapist. I did that on purpose. You can't be your own therapist. You you can't talk to yourself. And adversity brings out adversaries. People who thought they were with you or you thought they were with you. And then in the midst of adversity, when you need them, they're not there. Uh, The Bible says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Yeah, that if you're really my friend, you're going to love me when it matters. And if you're my brother, you'll be there in the the day of adversity. His his friends attacked his character. They said, Joe, this got to be your fault. We knew the whole time, you know, it's funny what folk knew the whole time but never said nothing about. (laughs) You was up in there. I knew the whole time that they was doing but you ain't saying nothing. You, you, You know, huh, I could have fixed that for them a long time ago had they asked me. But we got to ask you for you to do something helpful, right? Yeah, his friends turned on him, and they became what the Bible calls miserable comforters because instead of doing what they were supposed to do, They then began to malign him, and Satan then uses them as extra tools of torment in Job's situation. Because nothing bothers a man of integrity more when he's beating himself up to have someone else come on top of him and beat him up. for what he's already feeling bad about Job, if he's any kind of a real man, is already blaming himself. And then other people come and blame him he's already done his introspection but then other people are coming and piling accusations on top of him and he and they don't know his life but the thing about job that blesses me is in spite of all of this job does not respond to their attacks on his character because job understands something that we don't you'll never be able to change the opinion of a person who made you the villain in their version of your story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll never be able to convince somebody who's made you the villain in their version of your story. Hear what I said? It's their version of your story because they don't know your story. They haven't taken the opportunity to find out the, the, the things that caused you to do what it is that you're doing they haven't taken the time to figure out uh, what made you react the way you reacted they just saw your reaction and characterized your reaction based on their misconception of Of your actions and so now they've made you the villain but when a person has already made up their mind about who you are with secondhand information and does not even talk to you before they render their assessment of you that's not a person you convince and so many of us get in pointless arguments pointless debates on Facebook Instagram we get in comment wars with folk who have already made up in their mind that they're not going to like us they're not going to respect us they already have an opinion of us and that opinion is not going to be changed. And too many of us are wasting our time and our energy, soiling ourselves, rolling around in the mud with people who can't be converted to see who you really are because they've already decided that you're wrong. And they're right. And a part of resting in God is surrendering your right to defend yourself when your life is falling apart around you and it looks like it's your fault. That's part of resting in God, right? When you lose that job, or when the money runs out, or when it doesn't look like it's working out, or when the marriage that you said God sent is on the rocks, and it looks like it's your fault, and you could put up a status to explain to people, hey, I don't care if that marriage is on its last leg or its last bowl of Cheerios. Leave that married person alone. You can put that up there if you want to. Leave my man alone. Leave my woman alone. You can do all that. We still together. Yes, he live on the other side of town, but don't worry about that right now. Like, you can do all of that stuff trying to get people to see, or you can just chill. Because people have already made their assessment of your life anyway, especially if you live all over social media in the first place. If you live on the web, they've already made uh, an opinion of what your life is. And you can't convince them in what, uh, 280 characters now, however many characters you got. You can't convince them. A picture ain't going to convince them. If you say you're having a bad day with your loved one one day and then you post a picture of y'all out at the park in love, the next day they're going to say you're fronting, you cannot convince people who have committed to misunderstanding you. <laughs> I want to help a leader or an entrepreneur or a pastor who might be watching. You can't convert people who have made up their minds to be offended by you. If somebody's gonna be offended, they're just going to be offended. Offendable people will be offended by every situation. Ask me how I know. Because when you're living under the spirit of offense, every action is interpreted by the spirit of offense. You can't accept compliments because you think they're being funny, you can't deal with criticism because you think they're being funny. You can't say it's a good day because something bad might happen. You can't say it's a bad day because why everybody always asking me if I'm having a bad day. I might look like I have an attitude but I don't have no attitude. (laughs) Because when you live under the spirit of offense there is nothing that you can do to mitigate feeling offended and there is nothing that you can do as a person to not offend them. The best thing that you can do is live your life the way God has called you to live your life. Live in obedience to God. And yes, that obedience to God may cause friction in some relationships. It might end other relationships. It might cause people to walk away from you. It might cause them to say that you're disagreeable and you don't understand. But at the end of the day, you have to decide like Job, I'm going to let God handle it. And that's really what Job is saying. Job says, look, uh, I'm not going to defend myself from you in the midst of your accusations. I'm going to believe what I know about God to be true. Job responds to his calamity. And by doing so teaches us to respond to our calamity with faith in God. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to our calamity? How how do we respond to our problems? How do we respond to our situations? How do we respond when it looks like life is spiraling out of control? Do you cuss out your kids because you're frustrated that you don't know how you're going to feed them? Are you snapping at your spouse because you're frustrated about how you're going to pay bills and you don't know how you're going to be able to make it? Or are you neglecting the house of God because everything else seems to be going out of control and Sunday is the only day that you got that you can woo sigh and pull it together? How, how do you respond? calamity in life? How do you respond when it seems like things are going out of control? And there are really only two responses. In the midst of calamity, our response either brings us closer to God or farther away from Him. There's no neutrality in spirituality. Either you're going forward or you're going backward. We use the word stagnant, but there is no stagnation when it comes to spiritual development. Either you're becoming more like God or Christ, or you're becoming more like the world. There is no middle ground. How are you responding, or how you respond rather, in the midst of your calamity shows us then whether you're drawing closer to God or whether you're drawing farther away from him. Your response, I know people don't like this and, 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 and preachers don't want to say it now uh, because people are barely coming to church as it is and if we really start preaching uh, like this, people probably won't come back to church but I'm going to stand on the word of God and stand that I believe that God is raising up his church even in the midst of this pandemic and I'm going to tell you, your response to corporate worship in this season speaks to how close you are to God now this is not you never make my macro statements that cover everybody Obviously, we understand there are people who have illnesses legitimately that have older loved ones that they're caring for legitimately that have legitimate things that are keeping them out of the house of God. And if there are legitimate things, they probably were keeping you out of the house of God to some degree before the pandemic. But these pandemic Christians with these pandemic excuses. But. The pandemic excuses don't apply to anything else. I've never seen more cautious, germophobic, can't touch nobody, can't go nowhere Christians who don't want to go to church because all of a sudden it's a big crowd in there and Ain't nobody safe from the, vac- from the virus, and people are getting double vaccinated, and you're so conscious, and you're so science-focused, and you want a booster shot, but every time I see you, hair done, nails done, everything did, line up sharp, you ain't got no washing machine in your apartment, so I know you've been to the laundromat, you, you 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 done been everywhere but the house of God, but then on Sunday morning, out of an abundance of caution. You will meal prep with your non-cooking self for every day of the week to eat that nasty butternut squash and cauliflower rice with a grilled chicken breast with no salt, no pepper on it. And you will eat that every single day. Plan out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Put your clothes out for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You'll even plan out your Saturday. Know where you're going. Know that you got to go at 11 so you don't catch the lunchtime rush. You know exactly what you're going to do on Saturday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All planned out. But then Sunday at 8.30 out of an abundance of caution. And y'all, you know, y'all know he got that cough. I know he said he said his allergies, but y'all know these preachers ain't been getting back to I'm going up in there. Out of an abundance of caution. Yeah, your, 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 your attitude towards the church makes a statement about how you feel about God. And I said this before, but it bears repeating in this moment. Many of us are making the wrong statement. Your behavior should be dictated on what you know about God. And if you know God to be true, you know God to be a protector, you know God to be a provider, you know God to be a healer, you know him to be able, then you've got to act like you know that. And we spend so much time here. Here is the problem with our generation And it didn't start with us It started with generations before us With little microaggressions Little micro transgressions Against the word of God But now we have a generation That is so focused On trying to disprove That God said what he said Rather than just doing what God said The, the energy will devote to trying to argue out of obeying God's commandments as opposed to just relying on the Holy Spirit to just do what God said. And see, this is the reason why I believe this generation is destined for a way harsher level of judgment than previous generations because it is only this generation that tries to take wrong and call it right so that they can be in compliance with the God they've created in their own mind. Yeah. The previous generation, let me let me let me pull the cover off of it for you. A lot of these men and women of God <coughs> that have gone home to be with God, that 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 have died and we memorialized them, they suffered with and dealt with the same issues that this generation deals with. They just didn't have social media to put all their business out there all the time. But the difference between them and us is they still call their sin sin rather than trying to manipulate and corrupt the text to make their lifestyle about something other than rebellion against God. So they say stuff like, love is love. And if I can be committed faithfully to one person for 50 years, even though they're the same gender as me, isn't that just as good as me being... Uh, isn't that isn't that better than me being heterosexual and married and unfaithful for 50 years? And the devil is a liar. No, both are wrong. Neither is right with God. God will judge both of you. But the difference between a sinner and a, a saint and a sinner... Is a saint is able to acknowledge their shortcomings as sin and ask God to forgive them. And the reason why our generation is in trouble is because we are acting like we don't have anything to be forgiven for. See, we used to come to church. God, help me. I feel the Holy Ghost now. We used to come to church out of an obligation to tell God, thank you. But when you have a spirit of entitlement God help me, you don't feel like you gotta tell anybody thank you for anything. You don't even feel like you owe an old woman that you walk in front of to get into the same store and excuse me. When your mother you know your mother and father raised you to respect your elders. We have a generation that their parents allowed them to talk back to them tell them when they were gonna get up for school, tell them when they were going to bed and tell them whether or not they were going to church and now you wonder why can't nobody else tell them anything it is because we raised a generation of rebels and God is going to judge us because we called ourselves Christians when really we have some spoiled brat theology that says God has to do like our mom and daddy did and jump to and say how high this this is the problem with this crisis Christians don't know how to be faithful in suffering because they've never been made to suffer. You've always had a choice. You know why my kids are not picky eaters? Because for the majority of their life we've been broken, they just ain't know it. And because we were broke, they ain't have no choice on what they was going to eat. Choice was, we've never... Even now that things are a little bit better, we've never been like, hey, you want this or you want this. This is what we're having for dinner. If you don't want this, then eat it anyway. Because I'm not going to get the people called on me because you're going to school talking about you hungry. You might not be happy, but you're going to be full. Do you hear what I'm saying? And by giving people options, here's the thing. Leaders, pastors, I want to help you. When you give people input before they're mature enough to handle having input, that creates entitlement. And then when you create entitlement in people who are not mature, when they don't get what they feel like they're entitled to, they want to abandon the whole process rather than maturing and playing their role. (coughs) and here's the thing with church people felt like they were doing us a favor by showing up because we've created such a consumer focused church our marketing is so consumer focused our websites are so uh, consumer focused we've even tricked people into believing that the church is a social service organization like it's our job To pay people rent when they need their rent paid. Like it's our job to give out groceries. No, that is the Christian's job. That is your job. Personally. You. When when you notice somebody need their rent paid. You ain't supposed to direct them to your church unless your church has a program for that. You're supposed to help them. The Bible says don't withhold good when it is within your power to give it. That word your in the Greek is singular, meaning that it is talking to a specific person as opposed to it speaking pragmatically to the entire epistle. It's talking to the individual. Never withhold good when it is within your power to give it. But the church ain't supposed to do that, the church can do it. The church can collect resources for distribution to make it easier for people to get resources. The church, if it has a building, can make itself a hub for social programs. But that's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to teach you about Jesus so that you can be equipped to live like Jesus in a world that hates Jesus but needs Jesus so that they don't go to hell. That's the job of the church. To teach you how to be Jesus out there. And we've made this thing about so many other things. That when people find the other things that they come to church for. Like friends. Like community. Like other stuff that we make church about that it's not really about. When we make them able to find those things outside of church. They feel like they don't have to come back to church. It's not about praise and worship. It's not about you hearing your favorite sermon. It's about the fact that God commands us to do things, and when we act like God hasn't commanded us to do the things that we know he's commanded us to do, we're giving the wrong testimony to the rest of the world. Someone asked me, okay, Bishop, what is a reasonable expectation for church attendance? Bishop, what's what's a reasonable expectation for church attendance? What's a reasonable expectation for attendance at your job? A reasonable expectation for attendance at your job is that you are there when you are expected to be there, and if you are not there when you are expected to be there, that you will let somebody know. What if you were a supervisor and you had an employee that whenever they showed up, it was a pleasant surprise? How long would they work for you? If they showed up, oh, good to see you. I'm glad you showed up today. But that's how some of y'all show up to church. Some of us are crazy enough, I know I'm getting in trouble for this, some of us are crazy enough to claim membership at a church that we do not go to, do not give to, and then if somebody died would be mad if the church didn't let us use the building for the funeral. When there is no other organization that you cannot show up to meetings for, not pay your dues in, and expect to still have all the benefits of membership. I, personally, so I don't get nobody else in trouble. I'm going to be in trouble by myself, Mom, by myself, okay? I am a member of the greatest fraternity in the world. And there are certain rights and privileges that I just get because I'm a part. I joined, right? But there's another reality, Joe. I'm not financial. So it's some stuff that unless I get them, them one-and-a-half racks that they asking for, I ain't going to be able to do. And I've accepted that. (laughs) I ain't trying to go to no meetings. I ain't trying to vote. I ain't trying to hold no position. Uh, I'll try to help a young brother if I see him. If my brother is hungry, I'll feed him. If he's thirsty, I'll give him something to drink. That's all I need. I got most stuff I can spend $1,500 on at this point in my life. That's just me. But I understand that I cannot claim all of the rights and privileges because I am not active. And you understand that in your own life, right? Okay, fraternities, membership dues, that might be a little bit, too, uh, okay, that might be a little bit too. Uh. Let me bring it down. You know you ain't paid JEA in two months. You walk into your house after a long day of work, you hit that switch, don't nothing happen. Now, if you paid them, you'd be hot because you know, no, my stuff needs to be on because I paid that bill. But when you ain't paid them, you'd be like, ah, oh, dang, they finally got me. <laughs> okay, y'all ain't know, oh, dang. Some of us, some of us, even so bad when we try to leave a window open and a light on so that when we pull up, we know, okay, light's still on. Praise God, the fan's still blowing. I had a homeboy, man, that would put a fan up against the window. And if we didn't see that curtain blowing, we'd like, yeah, we ain't going up here in the summertime. It's hot. Because you understand that in order for you to have certain privileges, you have to invest something. Do you hear what I'm saying? But the church is the only place... Where we feel like it's supposed to give something to us, it's supposed to meet our need, and based on whether or not it meets our need, we then respond with our attendance, our service, and all the other things that God commands us to do because Jesus already did that for us. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is the the argument. I I, I, I want you to understand this, and I'm almost done, I promise. Uh, I I want you to understand, this is the accusation that God made, or that Satan made against Job. He accuses Job of having transactional worship. He, He accuses Job of only worshiping God because God is doing something for him. And how many of us can say that Job might not have been guilty of that, (coughs) but this pandemic has shown us that we are. On some level, when it ceased to be convenient for us to worship God the way he commanded us to worship him, we stopped. And then we got into a rut of not doing it and now because we got into a rut of not doing it we try to justify not doing it just like all sin sin doesn't kill you at first it's a slow death what did James say or John sin when it's fully conceived brings forth death baby sin don't kill nobody baby sin cute but when sin gets full grown, that's when it kills you. And the reason why it uses the analogy of conception, Chris, in the New Testament is because the way children will sneak up and grow on you, sin will sneak up and grow on you. Any parent ever looked and saw your kids one day, they were a baby on your hip, and then the next day, they're asking you for a cell phone, and they got a Louis purse, and name is Tamir. Sin will surprise you with how fast it grows. You start abandoning God in small ways. Then next thing you know, your life is spiraling out of control. You're then abusing things that you didn't used to abuse. And you're making decisions that you once didn't make. And you feel like you're more free. Because sin always makes you feel like you're free. Because sin is like an invisible fence. You can run around inside of it as long as you want, but it's going to be some pain if you ever try to escape. And that's where some of us are right now. We have a transactional relationship with God. Because God let 2020 happen and all of this stuff is going on. We've decided that we're not going to worship God the way we used to worship God. We're going to lay in our bed, turn some church on live. But God says, I need people who are not going to worship me transactionally. People who are going to respond to their calamity with a confession of faith. All right, Job responds to his calamity with a confession of faith. And his confession comes not from him denying his situation, but from a revelation of who God is. Verse 25 says, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. He was like, I know all this stuff is happening in the world. As a matter of fact, Job says in verses 23 and 24, he's actually making the argument, he's saying, man, I wish somebody would write down the story of my life, is essentially what he's saying. He's saying, I wish somebody would write down the story of my life because if they read the story of my life, they would know I'm blameless. But I'm not going to take the time to do that. Verse 25, because as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will take his stand at the last. God help me. He says, my Redeemer lives. Job says, I'm able to. To survive this circumstance because I know some things about my God. What do I know about my God? Really quickly, and then I'm in my seat. He says, Number one, the first thing Job says he knows about God is God is alive. Everybody say, God is alive. Yeah, he says, God is alive. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Look, uh, and it's important for you to understand this, that in a world that acts like it can kill God by denying him and recreating him in a way that is more palatable to their sin, you got to understand that the God of the Bible is alive and well. Yeah, God is alive and well and well we used to sing it in the old church god's not dead he's yet alive we we'd sing that they even made a movie called god's not dead and we need to learn how to celebrate the fact that we serve a living moving operating god god is alive He says, I know my Redeemer lives. Why is it important that my Redeemer lives? It's because the situation around me would say that I don't have anybody fighting on my behalf. The word Redeemer in the Hebrew is the same word for vindicator, for advocate... For protector, redeemer means somebody who is looking out for you. And what God is saying is that in the midst of your circumstances, you ought to be able to find hope and rest in the fact that you have a God who is alive. Not only is he alive, but he's alive and well. He is alive and he's powerful because you've got people who are living, but they're impotent. They're incompetent and they can't do anything for themselves. But God says, I'm alive. Yeah. Job says I know my God is alive but secondly what Job knows about God is that God is in control and because he's in control he's going to have the final say. He says as for me I know my redeemer lives and he shall take what? Not just a stand he will take his stand at the last. God help me you should have got excited about that. Uh Revelation 7 uh, gives us a beginning picture uh, of what the end of everything should look like. It's it's that, it's that pa- passage where uh, God gathers for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven, and they all sing uh, glory to the Lord as one great people, right? Uh, that is this last stand that this text is talking about. This is... This is the last stand, that at the last stand, God is going to have his way. And that's important because it seems like the world is out of control. If you look at the ozone layer and global warming and the polar ice caps and the environment, it looks like the world is out of control. If you look at uh, race relations in the United States and then our international relations with other countries, it looks like it's out of control. For the first time in American history, it looks like America is going to default on its debt this month, it, it looks like the world is going out of control, but the Bible says that at the end of everything, God is going to take his stand. Why is God taking his stand important? It is important because when God takes his stand, he's going to make sure that everything is wrong is made right by the time he takes his stand. <coughs> this is why Job says, I'm excited. Not that God is going to take a stand. Not even that God is going to stand up for me. But I'm excited that at the end of the day, God is going to have his way. And somebody needs to understand this. That because God is in control, that means he has the final say. And if he has the final say, that means he's working at this moment on your behalf. <coughs> he's working it out for you. He, he's working it out for you. He's working it out on your behalf. He's moving in your situation. God is alive and God is in control. And then thirdly, because God is alive and God is in control, sooner or later, Job says, I'm going to see him. He says, look, I got to read it. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth and at the last day he will take his stand on the earth this is verse 26 he says even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh I shall see God he said look even if my flesh is destroyed what is Job talking about? Job is talking about this skin eating disease that is afflicting him in the body and in order for Job to get relief he cannot just scratch what's itching. He has to literally peel the flesh off of his body, grow new flesh, and when that flesh starts itching, he has to peel it off again. So when he's talking about his skin being destroyed, he is literally saying, even as my skin is being destroyed, in my body, I'm going to see God. God, help me. Yeah, you don't, you don't get it yet. Job says, even though my body is hurting and my skin is being destroyed, God is going to show up in my situation and I'm going to see him before it's all said and done. Because it makes no, it's no good to me if God is alive and God is in control and I never get to see him move on my behalf. But the blessing of this situation and the blessing of this knowledge is that God is alive, God is in control, and he's not going to allow your situation to destroy you before you see him operate on your behalf. God says, I am moving in your life, and I know it doesn't look like it, I know it does not feel like it, I know when we look at everything that is going on in the world, it seems like God has abandoned us, but the hope of the believer is simply this... God is alive and he's moving and you got to be able to look at your situation like Job looked at his situation and say I know my Redeemer lives. I I know my Redeemer lives. I know it does not look good. It does not feel good. It seems like a mess but the beauty of my life and my story is that I know that my Redeemer lives and because he lives the songwriter said I can face tomorrow because he lives all my fear is gone because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives and every now and then we ought to be able to get excited about the fact that we serve a God who is alive and in control we may live in a world that is full of trial full of trauma full of tribulation things that trigger us things that make our souls ache make our tear eyes well up with tears every night but if you belong to God the believer ought to be able to find hope and rest in the knowledge that you have a living God and that living God is in control so in the midst of situations that seem dark and dismal like you're not going to be able to overcome them you ought to be able to encourage yourself with the knowledge I know my Redeemer lives. I know he's living. He's ever living to make intercession for me. He is speaking to God on my behalf. He is fighting the devil for me. And because he's on my side, I know that no weapon formed against me will be able to prosper. I know he's going to open up the windows of heaven and pour me out a blessing I won't have room enough to receive. Because my Redeemer lives, because he lived through the cross, I can live through this affliction You've got to place your faith in God and know that because God is on your side, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. That's, that's Job's testimony. Job declared this in Job chapter 19. God didn't turn his situation until chapter 42. And so for the next 13 chapters, or 23 chapters, excuse me, Job is confessing that he knows his Redeemer lives. May not confess it audibly through the text, but he's holding on to this confession. And this confession is what gets him, in my estimation, to chapter 42. Because it's interesting that in verse 26, he says he's going to see God. In chapter 42, when it's over, he tells God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes have seen you for myself. If you hold on, you'll see God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure in heart doesn't mean perfect, it just means undivided. That means if your loyalties are undivided, if you have an unwavering focus on God, then the reward for a pure heart is that you'll see God. It means two things. It means ultimately when you die, You'll see God in heaven, but it also means that while you're walking on the earth, you'll be able to see God moving in the everyday affairs of your life. You'll be able to look at your life and say, I see God in that. You'll be able to look at your job and things that happen in your relationships. And you'll be able to open up your online banking and be like, oh, I see God in that. God says you're going to see him. Stand to your feet.